So to me, you can find that new identity, but you know what? You have to sit with yourself a little bit and think about what is it? And the onus does come back to us on that one. Hi, I'm Erica. And I'm Karen. We're the hosts of The Luster Life, a new podcast series celebrating the stories of women who broke through barriers, worked for decades, changed the workplace forever, and are now embracing the future and changing outdated assumptions about age and retirement. Each episode of The Luster Life will feature an accomplished, amazing woman who will tell her story, what she did and how she did it, what she knows now that she wishes she knew then, and how she's thinking about getting older and what the future looks like for her. Today, Eric and I are speaking with Jerry Sedler. Welcome, Jerry. Uh, this morning, we're going to first give our listeners a thumbnail sketch of your background. Your path to retirement started perhaps when you got a BA in business and human ecology at Michigan State. You then had a long stint at Avon, a makeup company, in advertising and marketing. After that, you pivoted and you became editor-at-large of Working Woman magazine in 1985, a time when working women were becoming more and more prominent. And as I understand it, the objective of Working Woman magazine was to try to help women break through glass ceilings. And you worked on a number of governmental initiatives as well, including the White House Conference on Aging. In 2004, you became a senior advisor on a task force for the conference board that focused on something dear to our hearts, hiring workers with experience. You became an advocate for retirement or, we should say, rewirement. You and your husband wrote a book that offers self-help to the newly retired and, I guess, for the retired for a while. It's called Don't Retire, Rewire, and it's gone through three editions. We'll talk a lot about your book and the changes over that time period. So let's start at the beginning again. Tell us about your early background. Where were you born and how did you end up in New York? Ah, let's see. Well, I'm from Michigan and I did have this, yes, human ecology is an interesting term and it really is about, you know, self-growth, development, but it was retailing that brought me to New York City and uh, interviewed on campus with Abraham and Strauss, which is now a part of Macy's and Federated. So you see the evolving of your resume. Sometimes things <laughs> come off that right. were in your Change original career. Yes. That's it. Um, and it was fabulous. I came to the city. I don't think I had any idea how long I was going to be here. And here I am many years later and still as much in love with it, but taking a look at how the city has changed and I guess really how I've changed. And in a way, I, I realized that I was that pioneer coming forward. And to me, it's a, it's an advantage, it's a characteristic, and it's something I think that we should all be, especially as we look at the future, as we live the future, and as we think about the future. So I guess I had that early uh, vision of myself in a Conestoga wagon. R retailing was fabulous because it was the most hands-on, and I think if we can all have that kind of experience being right with the customer, even though retailing's changing today, it's still trying to get a sense of what does your audience want. But I knew that mm, maybe retail wasn't exactly for me. I've always loved the beauty 
beauty business, fashion business, appearance, image. I think it's important whether we're, you know, regardless of our age or stage of life. And um, I thought I would love to work in the beauty business. So I'm going to be really honest and say I went, I thought, okay, what's the first beauty company that begins with the letter A? I mean, I would love to say I really had a complete strategy on this one, but I didn't. And um, and it was Avon. And Avon, you know, has gone through a lot of morphing today, just like Abraham and Strauss. But um, it really was about the, the, the selling of beauty products. And at the same time, a lot of people forget that Avon also gave women the right to work when you think of that Avon representative. There was a very interesting thing there because I will say that when I was at Abraham and Strauss, I was the first woman ever as a female assistant buyer in the furniture department. And this was really a huge thing, which unbeknownst to me, but basically I didn't even break a glass ceiling. I broke a glass door because you have to get in the door before you can even hit a ceiling. So I started out in that first job recognizing, wow, I I had to do something different and stand out than going to Avon, which was fabulous. So how did the role of image affect you when you moved over to working women magazines? And there's a magazine started in the mid-70s, right, that's targeting this new demographic of women that want careers, not just jobs between school and family. They want careers. How did the importance of image affect your work at working women? I started out on the sales side and um, on the category of business equipment. And when you think about it, um, companies like Xerox, IBM, they just didn't realize that we as women were moving into roles and we were coming becoming decision makers. So also when you go back to that time period, we were definitely wearing um, what I'm going to call kind of the blue, you know, suits, very basic. Even some of us still kind of wearing that stock bow tie look. We call but it the mini men look. The mini men, that's it. And and you know what? I think there was something to be said that maybe if they think that we're a man sitting next to them, it'll be easier for business. Um, we also had a section, which some people were surprised about, and it was on image and stuff. Style. Because remember, for a long time, wearing a red jacket, that was really a big deal. You were stepping out of a model. You were making people feel uncomfortable. And there were definitely other industries that couldn't do it. Friends in banking said to me, oh, it's going to be a few years yet before, you know, we're, you know, we're we in red. <laughs> exactly. So, but we were trying to, to break the mentality, but also to shore up women on their, their skills. I remember that magazine and I have a I I do remember it. It was kind of taking lessons that men knew and adjusting them for women. Very much. Because they weren't copying them or saying behave like a man, which was a new thing. It was saying you're a woman, right? right but you need to learn some of the skills that men seem to know. Right. And always in a tone of voice where it was not that, again, that you, um, you're you not up to speed. It was a kind of like to enhance, to to really, to give you the confidence and the ideas and the tools to go forward. What did you love most about that? When you, and I'll never forget being in the sales and then going into editor-at-large, which was really a unique role there. But when you would be sitting with um, your, your clients as well as with the ad agencies, and you were really describing what was happening with women, the number number of women, you know, the salaries were we were moving, you know, into and beginning to command. And when they would give you an insertion order, I will never forget that you were convincing people almost like, take a chance on us. 
And, you know, not to negate the Fortune and the Forbes magazines because they would say, well, don't we get women there? And we say, yes, you definitely do get some professional women, no question. But the reality is you're talking to a woman in the pages of really her magazine, and she said, that's me. So I'll never forget the first time getting this 12, you know, page insertion order. And it wasn't just the excitement of a great sale, but I remember coming back and going, you know, it's for women. And that was really, I think, a, a pride in it that you knew that you were changing mindsets. And that was the beginning of a lot of this for me. It wasn't just a, a, a job. It was you were you get to kind of almost advocate for your own cause um, in a very different way. So when you told people, take a chance on us, what was your argument? Why should they take a chance on us? Ah, okay. So the, really the beginning. I mean, it's it's not as easy as all that. Boy, you always had the numbers. And, and of course, the runs that we would call these professional managerial, you know, runs and the databases and, you know, statistics. And and you are building your case. And constantly at Working Woman, we were, you know, definitely doing different kind of, you know, focus groups. And I'm not going to kid you. It took a long time to really make the sales because you were trying to convince not just men, but also younger women too, who said, why do I need something like this? Or in all fairness, well, can't I get the same audience and a glamour or a vogue? And hey, Condé Nast, fabulous magazines. But this was for the working woman. You were you were picking up this magazine because you were of that mindset. So then uh, you ultimately founded a consulting firm with your husband? Yes. And uh, so one of the things um, that I will share with you, how rather than just jumping right into the consulting practice, I'm doing a lot of speaking. So that's what really got me into the motivational speaking and traveling the country on behalf of working woman. And that clients um, would say, you know, how do we really reach out to women? And one of the earliest things is that it was was uh, Infinity, the car company that they were coming out with, the Q45. They wanted to reach women. And we had a wonderful advertising um, plan with them. And in a way, I guess I would call myself the added value. And I traveled around the country, and they held different events literally in the, the showrooms when the Q45 and the Infinity car was coming out. To Because, again, women in cars, you know, women we wanted love them. them. But let me tell you, though, but the sales men predominantly did not know how to work with us and would be as crass enough to say, why don't you bring back your husband or your brother or, or your father? So it was a very— I can only imagine what you said when they said that to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a denigrating, you know, experience. So Infinity really wanted to come out and to say, we we can really, you know, show women. But it was flying back on a trip. So sitting next to a man on the plane, and we started talking about the concept of success. And he turned to me and he said, I finally realized I've been climbing the ladder of success, but the ladder was leaning against the wrong building. And when I came home and I said to my husband, who at the time was president of an executive search and transition firm in New York City, and he said, but this is here what we hear a lot from people as they are going through transition, whether it's of their own accord or whether they got downsized, that, you know, sometimes we're following a dream. It's not even our own dream. That really led to the desire to uh, write our first nonfiction book, and that was called On Target enhance your life and ensure your success. And there was a bullseye. And that was real. And that in a way goes back to that human ecology, the development part of this. I've always cared about people. 
People are my passion. And when this man so honestly said that, I thought, wow, there's pain out there. And you think about this in the early, you know, the 90s and that. So um, that was the very first book. And that kept me on the road then, really, because then people, you know, we would say, um, how do you know I'm? you're living a life you're happy about living? What does it really mean? So and what was the nugget of that book? What was what was its purpose? Okay, I would say. Its message. Okay, because this was a big... Uh, the time of the self-help books. And there were so many, I always said that if a Martian ever came down to America and saw all the self-help books, he'd say, wow, people, you know? Um, because it was it was two-pronged, which is how I've always thought. The first part is you have to take an inward journey. You have to know yourself. You really have to know what makes you tick. Then the second part of it are the action steps. So again, I realized that um, as I reflect back now and as we talk, that's how I've always been. You do the internal, the investigation, and then once you feel good about that, then you can begin to lay the outside foundation. So this really took me across the country doing speeches, corporations, Nordstrom's, opening stores. I mean, it was amazing. But I was on the road so much that it finally... I don't know, I guess uh, it hits you a little bit that um, this is great. Are you really making a difference? Um, You can tell people a lot of messages. Is it resonating? Uh, Getting paid for it is great. But was this as fulfilling for me as it could have been? And this is where then Rick and I really, um, he was kind of getting, you know, a little bit tired of, of running a major, you know, firm. And we all know that, you know, working with consultants is rather like herding cats. And, um, and I was on the road too much. And so all of a sudden, um, he said, well, you believe in people. Why don't we really take a look? And we started our own executive search firm. And we specialized in um, C-suite senior executives, uh, not only in the beauty area, but in really consumer, you know, package goods. And, and it was great. As much as I thought I really was a people person, Executive search is a very important business, but it wasn't as fulfilling to me because you're filling a job spec that a client has really requested. What I didn't realize at the time, I was sitting on the board of the YWCA of New York City, and that was feeding my soul. One was feeding my pocket. The other one was a soul. And that's when I first then started to realize that there can be the the disengagement between what you do for a living and the pay and the this fulfillment. Is- so that's how I really started thinking about people and the future. So there you are with your husband working. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's on the why stuff, but your career, your life, but you're working. And all of a sudden, you have an aha moment, I guess, that says the next big thing is how people transition to the post-work side. So they're not retired, you are. Right, right. Clearly oh, not no, retired. No, we weren't but even seeing, 50. Yeah, right, yeah. and seeing this as, as the next big thing. How did that happen? How did it happen? Okay. When I saw then with myself, this work wasn't as fulfilling, and I thought, oh, gosh, do I see this as my long runway here? And this was a time of a lot of roll-ups from the the professional standpoint, and people wanted to acquire us, and we were like, you know, absolutely not. We're not going this way. But then Rick 
somebody was approaching him about another, you know, idea. And it was really one of our clients. I was speaking to him and he said, I'm so excited. He was 59. And he said, I'm so excited. I'm going to be able to, to retire. And remember, it was all about the money. Did you hit your number? And it was a financial number, not the, the age number. But then he called back and he said, hey, do you think there's going to be any part-time opportunities for senior executives that are going to come through executive search? And then the natural thing was, no, but why are you asking? And he was the one who honestly said, and we even say this at the beginning of Don't Retire, Rewire, that he had made the comment and goes, you know, I have been so looking forward to giving up the commute, the, the crazy clients, the boss, the demands, the budgets, everything. And he said, all of a sudden, when I came into work the other day, I looked around and I thought, man, this is also the place where I get my attaboys. I'm going to miss some stuff. That's it. Or our girls, And that was the aha. But what really sparked me is then I realized what I was getting from the YWCA board involvement versus the current job. And then all of a sudden, he was being so honest. And to say what happens, this was at the time then too, we were talking about longevity. The Hudson Institute was doing all that work that we're all going to be living longer. Three million baby boomers projected to live to be 100. And because I've always had this interest, this pioneering mentality, and thinking ahead, I thought, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen to people when work really does come off the screen. And that's when I started doing the research. So I'm a big believer of listening to what's going on around you, because there's a lot of messages. And if you're somebody with high curiosity, which I do have, you're going to take the time to listen. That's how it really began. But it was disruptive to Rick, uh, my, you know, business partner's spouse here, because, you know, you've got this business that's going along. And I'm like, you know what? And it was like, you got to be kidding me. But the truth is, it was, it was fabulous. He went on, created another business, sold it and everything like that. But, you know, we do have to stop ourselves sometime and really reflect. So you're doing all this research about this new thing about retiring. You come up with a word rewire, right? right? But what do you? How would you describe the approach that you took in that first book? Okay. Right. That what is the guts of your message that was different from the way people were thinking about retirement before? People thought about it from the financial side. I mean, there were even at that time so many books on Amazon all about finances. And the big question when you would meet people, it would be, do you have enough money to retire? That seemed to be the big question. Um, whether no, it was, nobody was concerned about what am I going to do never, after I retire. Never. And then I started going to like, um, you know, parties and saying, so, you know, the real question should be, what are you going to do? You know, you have, you know, if you have the money, what are you going to do? Question mark. And, you know, people would say, oh, and it was this kind of leisure golf. And then I said, ah, the real question should really be, what are you going to do when you retire that fulfills you? And that's that's when people just looked at you with glazed eyes. It's like fulfills because that's where people, you know, doing life by then 24-7, not, nothing even compared to now. And it's like, well, what do you mean fulfills you? And that went back to the man on the plane. Well, one thing that struck us also when we started getting interested in yeah. this is that people had not focused on something you mentioned already, which is longevity. Mm. 
You're going to be around for decades. <laughs> if you're 65, you're likely to be 95. Right. Right. Was that, was that part of the discussion, too? Oh, that that was it. And, you know, people say, oh, nobody lives that long in my family. And I said, folks, all bets are off, really. You know, there are some genetics, but at the same time, you know, we're just, we are living over a longer, healthier lives here. Jerry, just to pause for a second, was the, was the notion that if you find fulfillment or, or figure out what fulfills you or what your purpose is, you'll get over those feelings of loss or irrelevance or all the other feelings that go along with retirement? What it is, is that, so the picking up on on the fulfillment, most people then had no idea. And that's why we said, oh, we really do need to do a major piece of research here because we are not doctors, psychologists. So we knew we were treading into something we did have to be careful. So we did a big piece of research and we asked the question, why do you or did you work beyond the paycheck? So we talked to pre- and to post-retirees, and that's where we got a list of 85 reasons, some of them duplicated, but we call them drivers. Because once you know these drivers, and just a few examples, people said, I'm going to have accomplishments. Other people said, I want to belong. I want to be creative. I want to make a difference. And then people said, I like the power. I like the recognition. I like to be valued. And our belief is we don't care what your drivers are, but those drivers are what lead you to select work and opportunities that fulfill you. So if you kind of lay this out as an equation, it really leads you right to this. So that was the whole thing. People were entering this not having the self-awareness, not knowing what fulfilled them. And we thought if we're going to undertake this book, and Rick having spent these years not only in search, but also with you know coaching, with transition, outplacement, he knew people needed a process. That's why the book has the five steps to, as we said, to fulfilling work that hits on all the things, fuels your passion, suits your personality, and fills your pocketbook. So what would be the first thing that you would say you should do when you retire? What's the very first thing? Know why you retired. Look, some people are forced into it. That That's just, you know, something. And I, I do say know how you enter the future because that does affect how you're going to live in the future. So if you've got this retirement, I also tell people, go out at, in the summer if you possibly can when it's almost a vacation mode so you can get into that a little bit. But I would say have a bit of a plan. So you know on that Monday of your first day, is it going to be an ouch or is it going to be a joy? How you are really, you know, thinking about this. Um, one of the things that we even show in the book is to take a look at your calendar. It's this unbelievable calendar analysis because we'll go, oh, my calendar, I'm packed. And, you know, we all love to say, oh, I'm so busy. And then we show you how to remove everything from your calendar that is work-related and going to go away. And that's when people, some just plain out, freak. One thing, you, your book has gone through three editions yes. over a period of time. Now, during that period of time, have you observed that women approach retirement differently than men? There have been many more women in retirement over that period right. of time. Do they do things differently? I sort of hate to tell you that neither one of us prepared. So, I think on some levels, people are learning from each other and they are seeing ideas, oh, I want more of what she's doing or I want less of what she's doing. We have seen people um, 
The growth in bridge, I do have to say, is replacing golf, if I can really say this. That's fascinating. Oh, my gosh. But golf, I mean, you know, golf is one thing we've overbuilt in, in the country. And people say to me now, oh, I wish I'd learned, you know, years ago. But it's also finding out that golf is taking up a lot of time, which is why some men want to do it because it takes up a lot of time. But then other people are saying, oh, it takes up too much time. Again, showing the differences. The bridge, I think, is interesting because I think um, taking a look at dementia and Alzheimer's, we know that learning new things are, you know, really key. And bridge is definitely right up there with Sudoku and Mahjong of learning new. I don't think the four days a week of, of bridge is really good for you. I think it's sedentary. I I do think you're probably helping your gray matter. You certainly have a community of friends, but I'm really advocating now, get a portfolio of activities. And that's what I do see people getting. When it comes to women, I think that we've always been more multifaceted, whether we had children or not. Um, I think that we can wear a variety of hats differently. I do have one element of caution, and that is if you choose to really go into more of a grandparenting role, set some boundaries for yourself, or you are just going to find yourself really sucked into becoming more of a grandparent, grandmother um, than you ever imagined. Um, What I'm hearing lately is, you know, the woman wants to spend more time with the grandchildren, and now all of a sudden, you know, her husband is like, well, hey, can't we, you know, travel and and do different things? Um, To catch up on something you just mentioned, do you focus at all on the issues that are created when one person in a household is retiring and the other person is still working. And so they they aren't doing it at the same time. Right. That's actually the reason why we came up with the second edition, because that's what I saw happening out there. Um, first, um, couples, you know, working life 24-7. You've got children. You've got, you know, uh, you've got poor communication. And that was, so all of a sudden, as these couples were thinking about their futures, uh, financial advisors, um, who I did, you know, a lot of work with, would share with me, oh my God, these, they're not on the same page. So that's why I thought, ooh, let, let's do a second edition. And we added that couple section. And we even queued up ideas and like scripts and how do you talk to each other about your plans. There um, has been some work done on this. Should people go out together at the same time? And, you know, you, you can't always do it just like that. I think it really is on the couple and on the, the work environment. Sometimes I feel like it's easier if one can go out, get the lay of the land, begin to build their, you know, their new life. And then the other one um, can see, is it easy to tee up this future or isn't it? But then you get some animosity, like, I can't believe I'm leaving and going to work and you're, you know, getting to sleep in here. The worst thing that people can do, though, is when you come home, and whether it's the man, the woman, you know, both, you know, it doesn't matter, um, and say, what'd you do today? What'd you do today? Mm, That does not lead to, you know, you have to, it evolves, but you have to give a little bit of time. So that one to me, I know I always thought I would do more in the couples area, but it's a tricky one. (laughs) And your third edition seems, and I might be wrong on this, but it seems, it, it seems like this loss of identity when your job goes away, that you lost your job and somehow part of your identity went along with it. Is one of the bigger issues you're now tackling. Is right. that 
I, I think that that's really fair because um, when in America, when you go to an event, you meet somebody and it's one of the first questions people ask. So what do you do? So we have not, they don't do it in Europe in the same way. And so all of a sudden, if you don't have and to say, well, I'm a partner, I'm an editor, I'm a lawyer, um, you feel that you're diminished in some way because it's been such a big part of you. And I just say it, there's been a lot like written on this too, like the loss of identity. So sometimes I wonder, are we putting this out there and making it, you know, a bigger issue? Now, a linked with the word identity is another word to becoming invisible. And I think that those two go together. So I this is kind of the self-esteem, the human behavior part. You will always be who and what you were. You own that. So when you're looking for something new, are, are you going to be more of a volunteer? Are you going to be more on boards? Are you going to be, as you said about me, more in the arts? Well, yes, because now it's a passion, but I have the time to purposely do it. But yet everything I do, I'll be honest, goes back to my drivers. And um, I, I tie that back in and you can create a new identity for yourself through the activities you select. Because even when people say, oh, you're so involved with the opera. That is recent. This was not on my screen, the women's opera. Now. So that is a new identity. But I, I challenge all of us to think about in what arena, through what activity do we want to do this? Is it all about networking? People hate the word. It doesn't matter. It's what we do. It's relationship building, you know, connecting. It's um, it's like putting yourself out there. So to me, you can find that new identity. But you know what? You have to sit with yourself a little bit and think about what is it. And so the onus does come back to us. Please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and see you next week. Bye.